Okay, another episode about race. <laughs> you know, uh, my friend asked me, Keith, for somebody that is so against identity politics, why do you talk about them so much? And I thought it was a fair question. Uh, I talk about race and identity because I want to get beyond it. I, I am, I'm confused why people are so obsessed with it. I think it's a dangerous thing to obsess about. And I just really am critical of modern times and how on our minds at all times this topic is. And it, it compels me to study it more, which I've been doing a lot of. I consume a lot of information on this topic go down the rabbit hole of every different line of thought. And I want to touch upon some of them today tangentially. I don't want to go on a big rant today. Instead, I'm going to use an email from my cousin as a jumping off point. I've been emailing with my family on this topic. I was trying to share the podcast with them and get a conversation going about how we're feeling about the world right now. And my family in general is a little confused by everything, right? I think a lot of people are. It's a little overwhelming on top of the pandemic and quarantine stuff to be dealing with a real upending of culture and society. And I think this is kind of a problem. I never thought I would be on the side of things like, a little anti-revolutionary, but I think we should be careful how much revolution we're demanding right now. The system is definitely flawed in a lot of ways, and I'm really excited about police reform. I think the marches and the protests have gotten a good conversation going about how policing can be improved, which is a real necessity in my estimation. So I totally agree with all that. But to racialize everything is a little confusing to me especially when it comes down to insisting that each one of us is deeply racist and that this is part of the fundamental problem. And I hear this kind of a lot. I see it on social media. It's kind of a theme in mainstream media. And now my cousin is is purporting this. So I'm going to give this the benefit of the doubt today, and I'm going to go along with this attitude that a few of my family members have, which is that the best course of action right now for non-black people is to really look inward and meditate and sit uncomfortably with the difficult truths of our own bigotry, uh, prejudice, um, Reliance on stereotypes, uh, you know, deep-seated biases, I guess. And I've been kind of fighting the other side of that. I think what we really need is critical thinking right now. We need to think very critically and strongly about what we actually need to do in order to improve people's lives. That's the side that I'm on. And I think we do that by really targeting actual problems that we can see, that we can point to in the world, and consider how we can fix them institutionally. And if they can't be fixed institutionally, because not all problems can, 
than what could be done or should be done. That's my point of view. I'm not going to go into that today. Instead, I want to try on this other side of, you know, when I, when I kind of proposed this sort of thing to some of my friends and family, I met with this resistance like, you know, I, you know if I hit taboo words, taboo phrases that are just not said in polite liberal society, the conversation just ends usually. You know, most of my conversations with people that are too radicalized don't even talk about it with me. Uh, but they will say, this is just a deep-seated problem. We have to really come to terms with our understanding of race and our own racism. We have to uh, do the hard work. So, you know, to be honest, I barely know what all that means. I do know what getting rid of language in law means. I know what certain policies can look like and how you could word them. Word them. But to just do the deep inward analysis on yourself in order to end racism is a really weird task that's being asked of a lot of people. White Fragility is a popular book now, most popular in America. And it's all about preying on white guilt and how if you're white, your job is to listen and to give in and say nothing of harm or consequence and to just accept whatever is told to you by a black person because they are right about race. Uh, I'm extremely skeptical of that. But again, today I'm going to go into it because my cousin has sent a long email, kind of a thesis. She's getting a master's degree in social justice, basically in New York City. So I kind of take her point of view as expert or professional because she studies critical race theory for a living. Now, critical race theory is the hardcore woke attitude of our time. This is what kind of compels everybody to see everything in terms of race and race alone. It's kind of a neo-Marxist philosophy, but instead of putting class and being a class reductionist, it's like being a race reductionist, making everything about race and your whiteness or your blackness. You know, I can think of some other people in history that have done that, and they're not good names. But somehow, this is like a leftist thing, which blows my mind that people want to literally categorize people in these groups as if that's even possible, you know, as if um, a newcomer to the USA from Nigeria and a recent immigrant has so much in common with the descendants of slaves from 300 years ago, or as if a newcomer from Belarus uh, to the USA has so much in common with the Scottish that settled in Appalachia. You know, it's like insane that all these people are reduced to just two groups. What do you do with Asians? You know, like when I look at all this as a half Asian ancestry person, I don't know what to make of all this. And I resent that I'm challenged to, frankly. But in any case, I know that I have this kind of <clears throat> skepticism, but I'm going to go into it anyway. So Chloe, my cousin, has sent a series of questions, just, a, just you know, five or six or so um, long-form questions that I'm going to get into now. How do you remember black people being represented in media when you were growing up? 
How often were they the protagonists, heroes, intelligent, beautiful, sympathized with? How often were they the criminals, lowlifes, but of jokes, servants, not included in the story at all? Um, that last bit, not included in the story at all, is a really unfair question. You know, I mean, black people were not in the story of my family life. You know, like, how do you wedge blackness into every single aspect of society? Is that a goal? Why is that a goal? But that little bit aside, um, I'm looking mostly at the early 90s here for my childhood. That's when I was really aware of media and stuff by then, I guess. The Cosby Show was probably the biggest thing that I was aware of, uh, just barely. I had seen it a couple times, and it really portrayed this affluent, aspirational, upper-middle-class family. And Bill Cosby played this doctor, you know, with a wife and three or four kids, maybe five kids, I can't remember. And it was very normalizing, right? He was a doctor, he was successful. It, it had all the tropes of TV at the time, the 30-minute um, sitcom with a story and a life lesson at the end and kind of a heartfelt message and everything returns to normal. And I remember seeing that, and it left that impression of, yeah, black people are families too. It's normal. Um, the first show I was actually a fan of was Saved by the Bell. And I definitely loved that show, the group of six friends. I related somehow to Zach Morris, and I had such a crush on Kelly Kapowski. I think that Tiffany Amber Thiessen character will forever be this, like, love interest uh, trope in my mind. But Lisa Turtle was also on there as one of the six, and she was a black girl. And she was the sassy, shopaholic one who, uh, yeah, she had attitude, but she was also cute. She was feminine, she was sweet, but she was she could get, you know, stern and, and bitchy too if she needed. And I thought she was cool and attractive, more so than the other girl, Jessie Spano, who was more like, uptight, overachiever type, stern and stuff. So yeah, Lisa just normalized this aspect that black people are part of the friend group, no big deal. Uh, another character I remember kind of from these kind of sitcoms after school was Steve Urkel on Family Matters. And he was this like really dorky, <laughs> uh, this dweeby character, the next door neighbor that was really annoying. He had a catchphrase and it became this big pop phenomenon that was kind of insufferable, to be honest. But I saw him as like, yeah, just a really nerdy guy that you laugh at, right? And he had prominence. And I think like these kind of characters on the whole showed me how black people are diverse in and of themselves, that black, like blackness is not one thing. There's the doctor, there's the sassy girl, there's the dorky guy. There's all sorts of ways to be anybody. And I saw this portrayed in other races too. It wasn't just black people, but um, since we're focusing on blackness, I do remember this kind of being normalized in my life through the TV. Speaking of TV, I also watched the series Roots, which is a big deal. Um, it's this epic miniseries that chronicles a slave from Western Africa 
to a southern plantation. And it has this kind of Jane Austen uh, epic storytelling style of multiple generations and getting into all these different lives like a soap opera. And I remember it vividly. I don't remember how old I was when I saw it. Maybe too young, maybe just right. But I remember Kunta Kinte, even in West Africa, there was this scene of the tribe getting circumcised. They didn't show that, but I remember the, <laughs> I felt horrified by it somehow, <clears throat> just in the suggestion. And then the slave ship and how terrible it was and how claustrophobic and disgusting. And they kind of like tried to communicate that. And then in America, you know, being whipped, uh, trying to give up his name. They tried to like erase his African name and give him a, you know, a slave name. And <clears throat> yet he still had a humanity to him. He still fell in love. He still had his stories, even though he was a chattel slave worker. And it really came to life to me. It was like a really good history lesson in a way. And there were shows around that, or at least commercials around that. This is back when, obviously, you couldn't skip commercials or stream anything. I'll Fly Away was another series I remember tangentially to that about a slave woman um, working at a family's house and maybe like aspiring towards something. Uh, and The Color Purple, which was a movie from the 80s, actually, but I think they were rerunning it maybe around this whole phenomenon of awakening the culture more and more to black stories. And The Color Purple followed the, the plight of a post-slavery woman. So, yeah, I definitely remember those stories of actual black protagonists and the suffering of uh, black people throughout American history. That was very real to me. Um, yeah, and regarding black history, I remember, you know, my dad got me into baseball as an L.A. Dodgers fan, and Jackie Robinson was a big deal in my childhood, my dad's favorite baseball player of all time. He broke the color barrier in the 50s as this phenomenal athlete and human, and that always left an impression on me, you know? I watched a lot of baseball and basketball and admired the athleticism of Michael Jordan, especially, who got me, like, excited about all that. Um, <clears throat> the Simpsons was probably my favorite show as a kid. Um, I was, like, perfectly aged to grow with that show. And, you know, it's funny because that show, the characters are yellow. The skin is, like, very yellow and not, like, Asian yellow, but bright yellow. And their hair blends into their skin. Like, they don't look human, actually. And I think this was a very active attempt by Matt Groening and the creators to de-racialize them. They even had black characters in the very beginning of that series, when I look back on it. They had Marvin Monroe and Bleedingums Murphy and even Mr. Smithers were all black characters. So they were obviously making this effort to be representational. But then they actually either got rid of or changed those characters to just the yellow so that everybody was the same. And I kind of think that was cool. Of course, The Simpsons has a kind of fraught history with all that, but that's kind of how I saw it, you know? Like, The Simpsons was just generic, and I kind of feel that way still about emojis. Like, just leave the yellow emoji for everybody to use, you know? I don't want to have to think about race when I'm texting people. I think it's silly. So during The Simpsons... Um, the music video for Michael Jackson's Black or White was first aired. And this was when music videos were on TV all the time. 
I eventually got into MTV a lot, but it started with this one by Michael Jackson, who I was totally into, as was everybody. And it had Macaulay Culkin, and that was cool because I loved Home Alone. Um, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves was probably my first favorite movie, and Morgan Freeman had second billing in that as a really cool, I guess it's the sidekick character, but a great role. But yeah, the Michael Jackson video, um, there was one part of it I remember distinctly of, you know, while it's talking about it doesn't matter if you're black or white, it shows all these faces morphing into each other, and it's it's black faces, it's white faces, but it's also like faces all around the world. Um, East Asian faces, Indian, tribal, um, mountain, you know, faces, like everywhere. And not just like one type, but like a businessman face, uh, an artist face, like all these kind of different people. And using this like new computer technology to make them all blend. And that was really impressionable to me to show how diverse people are. I thought that was so cool. Um, regarding music, yeah, I really got into MTV, which was a big deal in the early 90s. Um, I remember plenty of black musicians that I was into. I loved, um, well, I, I actually loved grunge music. So I got into like this more Seattle subculture that was predominantly white. But I remember Seal's Kiss from the Rose, which was a fun song. Uh, Sade was a good song um, they did, No Ordinary Love, I believe. Uh, Sir Mix-A-Lot, I like Big Butts. I did not really love that song. It was like funny, but it also like, it showed me a culture that I didn't care as much about as a kid. Um, and then you had like Dr. Dre and Snoop and the album The Chronic coming out in the early 90s, which was a big deal. And I remember that also showing me this slice of life that was totally foreign to me, which was like South Central LA gangster culture. Um, and a lot of my peers actually got into that. You know, when I went to middle school, there was the rappers and the rockers, and it was a predominantly white school in Sacramento, California, um, because the country is predominantly white by and large, except for certain pockets. And yeah, there was like a big fandom for hip hop. And obviously that grew and grew. And now it's like way more popular than rock, which is not even a genre anymore, practically. Um, so yeah, there was plenty of representation, um, in media of black people, um, criminals, low lives, butt of jokes. Yeah. I don't remember this kind of thing. If, when I think of a black criminal from childhood portrayed, you know who I think of is OJ Simpson and the most infamous trial of, of all time, the trial of the century. I remember that I was like, my brain was coming online at this time. And I remember thinking somewhat critically about all that as it was going down, about his fleeing from the police and that white Bronco. Uh, this like, just looked like guilt to me, you know? And all this evidence, DNA evidence was introduced at the time. And it was like, it was just so obvious that he was guilty. And then the day that he was announced as not guilty was really impactful because it showed me a few things. It taught me some lessons. It taught me that race isn't the be all and end all that people might have thought it to be, that it doesn't condemn you in any certain way, that uh, O.J. Simpson, quote, transcended his race, which I think is a silly way to put it. But obviously his wealth and his status mattered much more than his skin color and you know, I really learned that lesson 
at that point. And I was like, like getting in interested in criminal and legal issues at this point. And then I like did research a little bit on Rodney King because I wasn't really aware of that when it happened. Um, and how this might have been some sort of, you know, not payback, but something like, okay, since we messed up the Rodney King thing, we're going to give this one so that we don't have another riot on our hands. It was kind of this attitude, like, I don't know, that's a little conspiratorial, but O.J. Simpson is a murderer. You know, he committed a double homicide on his white wife and her friend, and he got away with it. And that taught me something. It taught me a lot about power dynamics and how we talk about these kind of things. And I highly recommend the miniseries O.J. Simpson Made in America for anyone that wants to delve into that one deeper. All right, that's enough on question one, I think. Um, number two, what are some things you've gotten away with that it probably would have been much harder for a black person to get away with? i.e. trespassing accidentally or on purpose, talking back to a cop, not having your hands visible, da-da-da. Okay, well, geez. This is a pretty annoying question for me because I have been arrested for trespassing. And it was this totally ridiculous bullshit experience that kind of ruined my life, if I'm honest. And... <laughs> I hate the cops. Like, I, this just gets me so angry when I think about this. Like, I was in New York. I was doing photography. I was teaching. And I was doing a photo shoot of a girl that I was seeing and a couple friends that were helping. And we were on Roosevelt Island in that cool abandoned hospital building. And the graffiti squad shows up. These two plainclothes officers just, like, looking to arrest people. And... They handcuffed us, you know, they saw what we were doing. We were obviously not doing anything like that bad, but they took us in for, they, they put us in a cell in Queens and then they realized that that was wrong. So they drove us downtown Manhattan and then we had to spend the night in jail with like seedy people, you know, people that were there for like either, you know, violent charges, like it's people you just don't want to be around, crackheads that were, like, up all night being crazy. It was insane. It was insane. Um, I lost my job from that because it was, I was working at a public New York school. And the prison system, whatever, called them. You know, it was, like, in the system. Uh, things with that girl went very badly from after that. You know, it was, like, a really difficult thing to recover from somehow. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, I am totally happy to criticize police and the bullshit that they do when they're on the beat. Um, and I did not get away with that. I mean, the case was dismissed in the morning. We didn't have to, like, it wasn't on our record. You know, it was time served. And it was way, the time we served was already way too much. Like, I feel like New York owes me more, frankly. But, yeah, um... I resent this phrasing that I've gotten away with things because I'm not black, you know? I've gotten a lot of speeding tickets. I've been pulled over many, many times, probably like two dozen times in my life. And I've always, like, had this, like, anti-authoritarian attitude toward cops. Like, growing up, I was into punk rock as a teenager. Um, and 
ska music, which is all about racial unity and being critical of authority. And I, I just saw friends of mine getting written up for jaywalking and charged with drug possession and having that on their record ruining their lives or, you know, like insurance premiums going up because you get pulled over for speeding and stuff like this. And I just have, I developed such an animosity toward policing because I didn't think what, what they were doing was very important. And I grew up in a neighborhood that was pretty safe and easy and chill. So I guess what else are they to do? But something, you know, like I just, I never liked this about police and I don't feel like I got away with things because I'm not black. I have gotten away with some things. Like I've been able to talk my way out of tickets and I have to credit that less to my skin tone, which is actually tan or olive, depending on the season. Um, you know, I could be read as some sort of minority that they want to bust, you know? So like, if you're going to use this attitude that cops are racist, like they can definitely be racist towards me because I'm not a waspy Anglo-Saxon person at all. So I don't, but I don't project that outwardly. I don't assume that that's why I'm getting pulled over or why this or that. Uh, I have been able to talk my way out of things. I've used charisma and charm. I've used sob stories and pity. I've used, you know, excuses and a way with words and a politeness. You know, I've always been friendly, even though I have a disdain toward the interaction. I've always had a good attitude about it. And it doesn't always work. You know, I've definitely been written up probably more times than not. Um, I've smoked plenty of weed in public. And I do remember when my friends and I would, would get high, either in California or in New York streets, we would talk about how we knew like black people would get way more arrested for this kind of behavior. And we just thought, man, that's so racist. That's so lame. And so we were like on that side. And nowadays I'm a little more questioning that narrative. Um, and if I can just play that, that out a little bit, I think p cops, like they look for crime. I think that's their number one job. They look for crime. And insofar as smoking pot is a crime, which it shouldn't be, they're going to look for that too, but they're not like keeping their eyes peeled. It's kind of hard to do that, but they probably do patrol high crime areas more, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. And it's an unfortunate fact, but black neighborhoods in New York City, for instance, like in deeper Brooklyn, are higher crime neighborhoods. So they're gonna have more policing. And when you have more policing just driving by and you like have a couple guys on the corner just smoking a blunt at the bodega nonchalantly, a cop might stop and like check it out and frisk them and see if they have a gun or something and then say like, oh, you have a dime bag I'm writing you up for this, you know, like that happens and that's not cool. That's why I'm against ending the drug war first and foremost, if we want to like aid racial unity and um, equality, like just end the drug war. That'll do so much. Instead, like because cops are busting people for drug possession, it does make sense that in high crime areas, people are arrested for it more. So that's an unfortunate fact. I know this is kind of a taboo topic that it's not polite to talk about, but it is the case. So I'm just being real about it. Um, yeah. So 
in terms of people getting away with things and cops being unfair to black people, um, I think cops are assholes by and large. Not all of them. I've had plenty of good interactions and I've matured. <laughs> so I guess I don't actually believe that anymore, that all cops are assholes. Um, ACAB is kind of an acronym that people are using. All cops are bad. Um, I don't believe that. But I do believe that there are a lot of stupid, uh, untrained, incompetent police. And we need to reform that. We need better training. Uh, we need better tactics to deal with communities that have a disgruntled relationship with the police. Next question. What are some ways that our family was able to prosper in this country that would have been impossible or much more difficult for a black family? <laughs> she keeps capitalizing black. You know, I just, it's so weird that we use this word black, you know, like black is like my favorite color. Like black is like the absence of light, you know, like an African-American is not black. Maybe Ethiopia has like the darkest skin tone, nilotic, but there's so many shades of skin tone that are discussed within the black community, you know, like, and have that like lighter skin has more privilege than darker skin and all this. And, you know, I'm not trying to get into all that, but I just think that we don't have good words to talk about race. And it does compel me to not talk about it at all, if I'm honest. But let's continue. Um, right, here's another question I kind of resent, um, suggesting that it's impossible for a black family to prosper, uh, which is patently untrue. So, you know, my mom uh, is of Korean descent. Her family came to the U.S. in this wave of migration from the Korean Peninsula to escape Japanese Empire at the turn of the 19th century, 20th century, to Hawaii, and then they got to California, to L.A., where they settled. And their family quickly assimilated. So my grandparents were not even taught Korean because the idea was to just become American fast, which my grandparents did. And they were like kind of lower middle class in LA. And my mom grew up with plenty of racism, anti-Asian racism, you know, like the whole oriental slant eyes, all this kind of stuff. And she persevered, you know, and she faced sexism too as a woman, you know. She ended up getting into law and becoming very successful. And mom, you're like a real exceptional human. I don't think that everyone can do that. But I also don't think that you were held back institutionally, right? So not everyone can be as great as my mom, <laughs> but she does have colleagues that are black, you know. She's, the, the baby boomer generation has not been exceptionally held down by racism. My dad also has colleagues that are black. He's a professor. Um, on his side, you know, he grew up with a little more wealth, uh, upper middle class in New York. Um, his dad was a doctor who went to Stanford and University of Chicago. So my grandfather was a well-educated man. Um, our family came from Armenia to escape the genocide by the Ottomans, a.k.a. Turks. Um, so they also came around 1900, uh, getting out of there when the getting was good. And they made a livelihood for themselves selling carpets randomly. And they did very well with it, even though they were an ethnic minority. 
This is before whiteness was even a thing, before critical race theory existed. Whiteness was not really a thing. You had actual ethnicities or nationalities. You had the Irish, you had the Italians, you had the Jews, you had the Germans, you had the English, you had Catholics, you had Protestants, you know? Those were the groups for so long, and there were a lot of them, and there was tribalism. And now we've like made our tribes really <laughs> condensed just to black and white, just to keep it simple, two-party system. So despite the fact that Armenians were this ethnic minority, even a minority on Long Island, which was predominantly Jewish, my family had success. And my dad, um, it's not like he capitalized on that success. He went to an average, modest undergraduate college, and then he went into the army, into the Air Force, I guess, armed services, where he you know, found himself and decided he wanted to become a lawyer. And then he went to law school, which was also just an average law school and plenty of black people go into the army and plenty of black people go to law school i'm actually looking at the stats right now because i wanted to confirm that the percentage of black people in the population to remind everybody is around 13 percent the amount of black people in law schools is eight percent so lower than representation around the country but not exceptionally low uh, and their enrollment into the armed forces is 16%, which is not exceptionally high, if you want to make the knock against that. Armed forces do pay people, by the way. So, back to my family. My parents uh, met in California. They bought property in L.A. They got married. They moved up north, uh, bought property in Sacramento. So, the buying of houses... And home equity is an interesting topic here regarding wealth disparities. Uh, black people, by and large, have 10% of white wealth, which is obscenely low, and it should be addressed, the wealth inequality, and how to best do that. Um, we do a lot of programs like affirmative action and social welfare and uh, trying to encourage, and I'm happy to support more of those kind of programs if they work. I hope they do. Um, I don't know if me introspecting accomplishes closing the wealth gap, but redlining is a topic here that we should discuss. I'm not sure how big of a problem redlining was in the 70s and 80s um, in my parents' generation buying property. I know before that it was an actual policy, like in the 50s, black people were not allowed to buy property in new developments, and that was an actual codified rule, a law, um, sometimes a law by the state, sometimes just a rule by corporations. Uh, civil rights aims to fight that and has overturned it, and now it's not actually an instituted thing anymore, but it had a legacy, so of course, those homes that were built in the 50s and so have accrued in value and black families haven't been a part of that wealth accumulation. So I totally take that point. In terms of the 70s and 80s, decades later, were they being denied mortgages and loans? Were they not qualifying for other reasons? Can we address those reasons? Um, was the legacy institutional too so that individual lenders were still being racist? I think these are important questions. To just say, the system is racist, everybody is racist, 
is not a helpful answer in my estimation. But insofar as redlining definitely was a problem and carries a legacy, we can look at that. We can look at that critically. Next question. How many of your friends, people in your communities are black? <laughs> this is funny. Um, I just have to laugh because of the insinuation here. Um, like if you don't grow up with black people, you're a racist. Um, I did grow up with black people. Um, California and Sacramento specifically is pretty diverse. It's not the most diverse place. Um, my elementary school wasn't the most diverse, but it was diverse, even though it was a private school. There was a black kid in my classes, Louisa. There was an Indian kid, Michael. There was a Pacific Islander kid, or maybe it was Southeast Asian, Richard. Um, I was friends with these kids. There were white kids too, obviously, predominantly. I was probably one of these other minority kids or ethnically ambiguous, you know? Like, I'm just kind of guessing at these races, to be honest, because we didn't talk about it. Um, and, you know, on this topic of, like, kids and race, you know, kids are... Kids like to play. That's what kids do. And they they play and get to learn about the world. And part of learning about the world and part of playing is bullying and, you know, mocking and having fun. I don't remember ever being mocked for my skin color or doing so to anyone else or hearing that. But kids will make fun of anything, like literally. I, I remember even in grade school, one of my friends had this jacket. I guess his dad worked at a pharmaceutical company and it said like Advil on it. And there's this other um, painkiller called Bayer. And we would tease this kid, like, Bayer is better than Advil. <laughs> Can you believe that? I mean, this is what kids do. They'll, like, pick anything. As if, you know, Advil defined this guy's character. But I think his feelings were actually hurt. I remember, you know, learning a lesson to be careful about that because, you know, kids hurt each other. But not because of racism, you know? And furthermore, as a kid growing up, I was incredibly insecure being a kid is hard, especially at middle school. Again, where I did have black friends. Shakira Simpson was in my friend group. It was part, she, was a, she was part of the rocker group. Um, and one of my best friends was Keon, who was uh, Iranian. Um, and even like new Iranian. He might have even been from Iran, or at least his parents were. Um, but yeah, like... In middle school especially, but also like fifth grade, sixth grade, hitting puberty, I felt so awkward. I felt so lanky and short and scrawny and ugly and like my teeth were bad and my hair was a mess and I just felt stupid and gross and judged. And maybe skin was even one of the things that I was critical of, but it wasn't this like defining quality, you know, it would be, it would be absolutely inane to reduce my identity to skin or anybody else's for that matter because kids grow up with everything being equal and race just being another topic or idea in the world equal to all others uh so yeah in high school um i was part of this alternative group we were like artists and 
musicians. I was in a band playing punk rock and ska music. And we were, you know, we were the group that like dressed in thrift shop clothing and dyed our hair blue and red and stuff. And again, even in this small group of like 10 kids, Nicole was black. Um, I assume we never actually talked about it, but her hair was like black style hair. If I can say that. And then at the end of high school, I met Neil who was in my AP classes and Neil has been my best friend basically ever since all throughout college at UC Berkeley, moving to New York together, you know, like traveling together. Like we've been total homies, just total mates. And he's black. Uh, he didn't identify as black. I don't think when we were young, um, he had dreads, um, but he wasn't like a Rasta or something. He was like a totally unique individual who was a painter and got into skateboarding and got into science and was into Radiohead and taking acid with me. And like, we were just total individuals, you know? So I've just always believed in individualistic attitudes and accepting people for how they, for their character, <laughs> you know? Can you believe it? That we were judging each other based on our character? So, yeah, at Berkeley, like, our group was even more expansive, you know, it included poets and hippies and all these different kinds of people. Harmony was a very close friend of mine. She became um, a Columbia black poet studying at Columbia. Um, she's really leaned into her blackness more so. Andre was around a lot. He was more of, like, the hippie style from the Loth co-op, but he was around. I mean, there was just tons of diversity. Maybe this makes me exceptional or privileged to be around such diversity but i think it's really really regressive to go back and start limiting people to their skin instead of aiming again for this post-racial world that i've always lived in until the last five years now it's racialized somehow but my whole life has been like this cool commercial for diversity basically and i really take pride in that i have no shame about that i feel good that my friends are diverse and not just diverse in their ethnicity but diverse in their thoughts i have some social justice friends like my cousin chloe but plenty of others in new york especially some like super woke friends i have some super critical friends like intellectual dark web style that analyze that stuff more deeply like i do i have friends that don't care about this at all that just like their eyes glaze over whenever i talk about this you know i shared this kind of podcast with one of them my buddy and shared in in denver and he like lasted one minute you know he's like this is boring <laughs> fair enough um i like that that my friends are diverse and that they're into different things you know, and it has nothing to do with race at all. You know, like a black friend can be into punk rock and a white friend can be into hip hop. You know, like things are not rigid. Why are we trying to make life rigid? It's so stupid to me. Furthermore, on this, you know, do you have black friends? You know, I thought that like my best friend is black or some of my best friends are black. I thought that was like a, <laughs> I don't know, some sort of dog whistle that you are racist. Like, you're not allowed to actually say that, which I think is so stupid. 
Like if you can have black friends or if you can date black people, like you, how racist can you possibly be? You're obviously not considering yourself superior. You're not considering them subhuman. Like you're loving them. You're caring about them. And I've dated black women throughout my life. So I just, I think it's so funny, this whole line of questioning. I've also worked with tons of black people, like everywhere I've worked, at movie theaters, in arts, in education, uh, at agencies. Like there have always been black faces. And it's totally normal to me that black people are part of society. And, you know, especially in my hometown of Sacramento, like, it's not like there was this black neighborhood in my community. They were just part of the community. They weren't black. They were just American, you know. There are black, uh, you know, neighborhoods. And that's an interesting phenomenon to study because I do think there's something a little difficult about that. There are also Chinatowns and Little Italy's. And it makes sense that people self-segregate or that people in-group with each other. So I have a lot of leeway toward accepting that that happens. But then when it happens in a destructive way, like in housing projects that are overrun with crime, that's bad. And I would like to address that. But that's economic. That's a class issue. There are plenty of Hispanics and Latinos in uh, impoverished ghettos, you know. This is not specifically a black issue. There are plenty of white people stuck in the Appalachian Mountains with no education and no healthy food who are totally segregated from the, like normal society. They're white, you know? So I just, I just have to be skeptical about this narrative that this comes down to race. I just really, I'm not getting convinced by this, if I'm honest. <clears throat> Moving on. How old were you when you first learned about important figures and cornerstones in black American history? How old were you? Like if you were not, if you were too, if you were not young enough, then you're racist for not learning it. And it proves that the education system is racist for not teaching it. <laughs> this list, I was expecting like, um, you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass. I mean, Henrietta Lacks, the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, the Black Wall Street Massacre, Juneteenth, redlining. Well, I think most of us have heard of redlining at least. Juneteenth has just now become a big uh, word this year. I had never heard of it until this year. These other three are really obscure. I happen to know them just by virtue of being overeducated statistically. But if you don't know what these are, you are not a racist just because of that. I mean, maybe you're a racist, but I don't think so just because of this. Henrietta Lacks was a woman in the 50s who she had her DNA taken for study. And, um, you know, God, I remember I, I remember her name from biology class, but I was not into science. So I've kind of tuned out a lot of it. Basically, her it might have something to do with the genome, like studying her DNA for years afterward, like this legacy DNA thing. And I guess she was never compensated for that. So that's kind of the controversy about it. But it was the 50s. Nobody was. It was like medical practice to just take that. 
that's a really weird name to throw in there. You know, I would have thought like, you know, James Baldwin, Tony Morrison, W.B. Dubois or something. That's pretty obscure. The Tuskegee syphilis study is also really obscure. This is, um, I'm looking this up. So I remember hearing this name, Tuskegee syphilis study, and I knew the basic principle of it, which is that government doctors injected syphilis into black men knowingly, which is awful. And now reading about it a little more. <coughs> so it was several dozen black men in the South in the 20th century. This lasted a long time. Like they wanted to study the effects of syphilis untreated and they didn't tell these guys who then passed it on to their like wives and the kids that were born. So that's like horrendous. This is like inexcusable. Um, the funding even dried up for this study while they did it. And instead of curing the syphilis at that point, they just let it keep going. Bill Clinton ended up apologizing for this in the 90s. Um, I don't know how you repair that kind of historical damage to, I mean, this is a very small group of people, but it's not cool. So there's nothing much to say about that. I guess I will say again that this is not specific to black people. There have been a lot of people throughout history, including white people, who were given drugs that were really dangerous to them, either for no compensation or little compensation, preying on, you know, the poverty level. So this is not, this does not have to be viewed through a race lens. We can, though. I mean, that's fine if you want to make that argument that this is a, an example of racism. This isn't happening anymore. So I would use that as, a, as an example of overcoming racism if you wanted to use it. The Black Wall Street Massacre, <laughs> it's a funny way to rephrase it. I studied that in AP history as the Tulsa race riots, or more accurately, it could be called the Tulsa race war of 1921, because it was like, first of all, a massacre implies that it's one-sided. This was not one-sided. This was a confrontation between two tribes in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1920s, racist place. This is back in the days of lynching. Um, which is awful, and black people knew it was awful, of course, which is why they're trying to stand up for it. Um, as the, as it usually goes, a black kid made a pass at a white girl and got arrested for it. Um, I'm not sure if he literally got arrested or if the mob went after him to lynch him first and then the sheriff arrested him for his protection. In any case, the black community showed up armed with guns to defend and save the black kid. Um, so that's an interesting point that black communities had guns at this point, which is a symbol of equality, I would say, I would argue. Um, they were met with a white tribe, you know, a clan of white guys. And this is like just an ugly face-off. The sheriff tried to quell the situation and convince the black guys to leave peacefully. But while leaving, apparently, Allegedly, a, black, a white guy grabbed one of the black guys to disarm him, and then all hell broke loose, and shots were fired, and people died. And in that first moment, it was mostly white people that got shot. So then they had to retaliate. So then they like showed up on the streets of Tulsa to the black neighborhood and slaughtered them and burned down houses and just committed total mayhem. Awful stuff. That is history, man. Now, just to put this in a little more perspective, um, 
I don't know how many numbers you're thinking. The total death count was 10 white and 25 black or so. So this isn't like some insane death toll like the Civil War was, or even the Revolutionary War, or World War II, obviously. But it was bad. It was a bad look in history. And what makes it especially bad, here's the Black Wall Street part, is that actually this was a real concentration of wealth in a black community. This was like a rich part of town that the black people had. And you could easily argue that the white guys in town really resented the black community for being wealthy. You know, I would totally buy that. And what do you do to repair that loss of wealth? Because houses were burned down and the major wealth holders were killed, presumably. I mean, out of the 25, I don't know how targeted they were, you know, aiming at the richest people. But this is an interesting story. And I think it's actually especially interesting to study now because it, it's actually... It's, it's a warning of how bad race relations can be if we overemphasize racial identity. This is how bad it can be. You guys, all about Black Lives Matter, are stoking hate on the opposite side, which are like those Charlottesville tiki torch carrying white nationalist guys. I mean, if you're going to obsess over how ingrained and important race is and how it's impossible to overcome because it's such a big deal, you're not going to convince all, all everyone else to just acquiesce and be like, oh, you're right, we, are, we apologize, take everything. There is going to be some minority of people that's like, fuck that, we're going to play to win. Like, if you're going to, like, champion your cause, we'll make up our own cause around whiteness. I think it's awful. I think that's a terrible thing to do. I think the white people doing it are terrible, and I'm happy to say that as much as you want me to say that and to condemn the KKK and, you know, Richard Spencer, who's like the most prominent white nationalist, I guess, right now. It's all bad, but it goes both ways. You know, even the movie Black Panther, which is so celebrated for being an average comic movie, it's all about a black ethnostate. It's about celebrating that. Why? Why? It doesn't lead to good places. So, yeah, that's what I have to say about that and those history questions, another biased phrasing. Okay, how do you remember black people being talked about when you were little by people in your life, family members, friends of the family, teachers? <laughs> normal totally normal I you know nothing sticks out um, it was never an issue if it ever came up it was either because they were talking about a black family we knew which was sounding like any other family we knew if it came up in school or you know in current events it was probably talked about in the same way it's talked about now which is slightly patronizing slightly tiptoeing, being as non-racist as possible, I would, I would guess, because I have no recollection. Well, I definitely don't remember the N-word being thrown around ever until, ironically, I started hearing hip-hop music. That's where I heard it, from black people, in that kind of like inner city gangster style. But until then, I had never heard this, 
So, yeah, I don't know what introspecting on that point does. And I urge people not to think overly hard and, and come up with some false memories where you might have heard some disparaging racism that you internalized and forever have been influenced by. And now you're a racist because you heard it. <laughs> I think it's laughable. I do. Next question. How did police officers treat you when you were growing up? What role did they have in your community? And how were you taught to think about them? I think I kind of already answered this, but I can elaborate. I see where it's going, kind of. Um, so I mentioned that I was really antagonistic against authority in general. And that's across the board authority, like the TSA at airports, security guards. Like, I don't like it. But as I've matured as an adult, I do accept it as a kind of necessity to some degree, uh, a slight infringement on our liberties in order to protect us as a society. I can accept some amount of that. And I see police having to do that. And in Germany, where I live now, they're totally much better about it. They're way cooler. They can accept way more, um, you know, deriding toward them. They really do protect and serve, which Americans... American police have that written on their cars, but it doesn't ever feel like that, does it? Um, but I was taught by my, by my dad to understand the power dynamic with police and how they do have guns and how they do have handcuffs and that being arrested is not good for, you know, it's not fun, it's not good for your life, you know, it has all these consequences. And he did impress that upon me. So I appreciate that, dad. Um, nevertheless, I still didn't admire or look up to police and they didn't have this role in my, in my neighborhood, like I was saying of protecting it or patrolling it or anything like that. You know, like I lived in a low crime area, I guess, I don't know, but I never really saw police around when we were downtown. I would see them, but it wasn't this like active thing. So whenever police did show up, it was always annoying to me. Um, but what I will say here is that I did not get raised to think of them as the enemy. I did not get raised into a war with the police. And I do think that some communities do get raised with that attitude that they're at war with the police, that, that, that the police are the enemy. Fuck the police, NWA. And I think that this attitude is prevalent in black prominent predominant communities in black neighborhoods where it does actually look like a war with the police like the wire and this is the drug war but it's also about bodies it's also about violent crime and this is another like ugly stat that we're not supposed to talk about but black men commit a very high proportion of violent crime that's not all black men, obviously. Most black men don't commit crime. But insofar as crime remains a problem in America, it's very reducible to specific places. Southside Chicago, Brownsville and East New York. Um, you know, I think LA is getting better, you know, but South Central LA. There are these pockets, inner city of Detroit, where East St. Louis, maybe. like. 
you have the phenomenon of crime manifesting, and it's studyable by social scientists who know this stuff, but we can't talk about it. It's politically taboo to talk about it. And if you do analyze it, you do find that in high crime neighborhoods, they are not being raised necessarily to appreciate the police, to, you know, accept getting arrested, for instance. So this is kind of like a, an attitude that begets more trouble. Unfortunately, it's unfortunate. Like, I would love to actually address that. I don't know what I can do. This, I guess, is what I'm supposed to do. Just thinking about it, introspecting. But what I would actually like to do is um, be an ally to the community leaders of black communities that understand the problems and actually want to address them. I don't know if that takes more tax dollars, reallocation of funds, the whole defund the police to like, you know, divert those kind of funds, maybe in excess towards social programs. I'm not sure how much social programs help. I hope they help. I believe in them. But I also know another unfortunate fact, which is that welfare has hurt black families from the 60s onward and Linda B. Johnson's initiatives. When you offer a black mother welfare if she's single, but you don't offer it to her when she is in a partnership or married, you have an extreme decline in present black fathers. Now, this is like the worst thing I can say. Even just saying that makes me racist, maybe. But I'm saying this out of compassion. Like, this is a real, this is real. This isn't like some, you know, we have to reckon with race in America. This is like an actual thing that social scientists know. So I don't know what my role is there. And I actually resent being told that it's my fault. <laughs> That's not my fault. First of, all, first of all, I'm happy to support welfare programs when they help. I will even support them when they don't help because they at least sound like they should help. So I'm happy to do my part there. I'm happy to do the work of, I don't know, nah, I'm not a bureaucrat. I'm not going to do the paper pushing work to make it done, to get it done. But I'm happy to support real people to achieve what they want, which includes understanding the monopoly on violence that the police have to have, which includes gun reform, you know. Um, it includes better education for public schools in impoverished neighborhoods. That's very real. Better nutrition programs. These are things that I want to do, that I want to support. And being told from critical race theory that there's nothing I can do, that if I, if I participate, then it's a white savior complex. If I do nothing, it's white silence equals violence. So there's no winning there. Just like if I move into an impoverished neighborhood, that's gentrification and that's racist. If I leave a neighborhood, that's white flight and that's racist. So I don't buy into this logic that everything I do is racist and that there's nothing productive to be done except for wallow in the original sin of being born a certain race. It's fucking bullshit is what it is. And I do think that people need to understand that. As instead of going along with this 
you know, I better be virtuous. I have to do what my friends are doing. I have to be cool and look as anti-racist as possible. Otherwise, maybe I am racist because I've never dated a black person. I didn't have a black friend growing up, so maybe I am racist. Like, man, I don't think this is healthy, guys. I don't think it's healthy for our society, for our individual psyches. That's the end of this questionnaire. And it's really confounding to me that this is meant to do the hard work of confronting my own racism. I really am confused by that. Um, I'm going to end on this note. So Chloe contextualized this um, by describing her experience in college. She went to Oberlin in Ohio, which is like this liberal arts bastion for hippies and far leftists. And she was there like in 2013 when there was a hate crime, a spate of hate crimes on her campus. And she says that she... I'm actually going to read this. I hope that's okay. Um, This is what she says. For most of my life, I did not understand the systemic nature of racism. Despite the fact that I was raised in diverse New York City and that I learned about racism in school, I was lacking a critical understanding of white supremacy, oppression, and privilege. It was not until the spring of my senior year at Oberlin, when a student committed hate crimes on campus, that my education really began. I was lucky to be in the presence of brilliant black activists and allies who organized panels, conversations, and days of action in response to the hate crimes. Now, she then presents these questions, which is what she was also presented with by these activists. I was curious to learn more about these hate crimes that happened in March 2013, so I googled it. I googled Oberlin hate crime. Let me tell you what I see. Oberlin College Battles. You may recall the big to-do last February and March over a wave of hate incidents that engulfed Oberlin College. Racism, da-da-da-da-da. It was all there. Turns out it was all a hoax perpetrated by two Oberlin students of progressive political inclinations. That's from the National Association of Scholars. Uh, Next, cityjournal.org. Universities are too often serving as hate crime hoax mills. Action against Oberlin College and a top university administrator incident hate crime hoax. Inside Higher Ed. Report. Oberlin hate crimes were hoaxes. The month-long string of hate crimes that prompted a federal investigation and culminated Oberlin College canceling classes. Um, this is from the Wall Street Journal. Oberlin police, da-da-da. So then I googled just Oberlin hate crime hoax, and I got even more information. And look, I can give you all the facts I, I can find, I have to take in this information. I'm not saying I believe it. It's hard to know what to believe these days because information is so subjective. And what I worry about is that even when I say this stuff, how you hear it, maybe you reject it flat out like, oh, those are all right wing rags. You can't trust anything they say. It challenges my narrative, so I'm going to reject it. I want to believe what I choose to believe or maybe Even if they are hoaxes, the very idea of hate crime as a possibility justifies re-education programs and the like, which is the official stance that Oberlin College itself took, knowing that the students that actually perpetrated these hate crimes, which involved, um, you know, a fake KKK robe, scrawling, racist, and homophobic bigoted words on walls and stuff with graffiti 
these were all perpetrated by people that actually wanted to push a leftist agenda and they used this as a false flag operation but maybe like oberlin you think it's a virtuous lie we need to let ourselves be in fear of that in order to achieve the change we want to see in the world and if that's how you feel i don't know how to talk to you because your beliefs don't change with new information my hope is that it might take some wind out of your sails and give you some doubt as to what you've been led to believe in it's not wrong to believe in equality and justice but what is just if it's built on lies and misinformation. I think it's worth questioning this narrative, guys. I, I don't mean to take the wind out of the protest movement because I do support our goal of reforming police and I'll continue to do that. I'll continue to support Black Lives Matter insofar as it is addressing actual systemic problems I don't think that those problems are specific to black people, but I hope that they're doing more good than harm. I find what they're doing to the psyches of a lot of people harmful. So let's make sure that we do good on top of that. I'll leave it there. Until next time. Ciao.